Okay, there we go. So let's, let's read that a little bit together. So it opens up with Jesus in the Garden Gethsemane. He's late at night. He's been praying, and now he's speaking to the disciples. Am I coming through okay on the mic? Is it all right? Yeah, great, okay. And then it says this. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, when the, t- the time when the power of darkness reigns. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I didn't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, I'm not, Peter retorted. And about an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them, because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of insults at him. And so here we find Jesus, totally abandoned by his friends and disciples, alone, beaten, and on trial. And if we look at the little map here, we see he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane outside of the city and brought all the way down to the house of the high priest. And the high priest at that time was the person with the highest authority for the Jews. Under the Romans, they weren't allowed their own governors or king or leaders in that kind of sense. And so he was like the the highest position for them. And at first, Jesus is brought here to this house. And it seems as if the main instigators uh, who were plotting his death were there. And they gave him a trial by night. And then uh, they, you know, they just, when they're convinced with their plan and that they're going to get Jesus killed... Then early in the morning, once they're satisfied, they draw the whole council together and the whole Jewish council meets to condemn Jesus officially. So this is where we take it up next. It says, at daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and Jesus was led before this high council. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And they say, you know, in a kind of like, you know, just tell us, just let us know. But we know, as we've seen many times before, this wasn't their motive. And throughout these trials, Jesus stayed mostly silent. He didn't defend himself. You know, he didn't defend himself to false accusations. 
But then in Matthew, we record that the high priest, who had the highest authority in this, in this place, he turned to Jesus and said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And to that, Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy, why do we need any other witnesses? You have all heard his, you've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. And so the religious leaders, they reach their verdict. Jesus says that he is the son of God and they don't believe him. So they, for this, agree that he should be killed. But of course, under Roman rule and under Roman occupation, they didn't have the power to execute someone and to condemn someone to death. Only the Romans could do that. So now they've got to try and convince the Roman governor to sentence Jesus. So that's where they take Jesus next. And they take him all the way up the, across the city to Pilate, who was the governor at that time. And this really is where things, when you look at it, things just start to get ridiculous. And things start to snowball. Things that should never happen start to take place. And so this is where we pick it up next. It says this, The entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So first of all, they come to Pilate. They want to convince him to execute Jesus. And they open with a blatant lie, just an out-and-out lie. This man has been telling people not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. Has Jesus said this? No, not at all. Jesus has never made this claim. And uh, they say, he's, you know, and he's saying he's the Messiah, a king. And yes, Jesus is the Messiah. You know, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the king. But the way they present this here is if Jesus is um, wanting to come in and start a revolt and saying that he should be the king and overthrow the Romans. That's how they present it, by mixing it in with this, these taxes. And of course, you know, Caesar, Caesar, he claimed, and part of his propaganda, he used to say that he was the son of God, and that he was a God who was bringing peace to the world, and that's, you know, there's no other king but Caesar, and everyone must bow to him. So for Jesus to say that he's the son of God, and he is the Messiah, you can see how that does come up against Caesar's claim, doesn't it? You know, and there is like a political edge to it, but the leading priests, they throw in these lies to try and, you know, but Jesus, he wasn't coming in as a revolutionary to come and, you know, slaughter the Romans. That's not what, what his message was. And so they, you know, they start to do this. So Caesar, there, uh, sorry, Pilate then, he, he goes and he investigates Jesus and he interviews him. And Luke kind of summarizes it very briefly. And it says this, Pilate uh, questioned Jesus. And then after a few moments, says, Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Note that there. This is the first time that we see that Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. He finds nothing wrong with him. And then it says this, but then they became insistent but he's causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. Again, just lies again, blatant lies. Has Jesus been causing riots? No, not at all. Just total lies. And with this as well, it's not only lies, but in a moment we're going to see how hypocritical this is. This accusation they land on Jesus, this false accusation, how hypocritical it is. But then Pilate responds, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, 
When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And so here we see Pilate's first compromise of his own integrity in his um, coming face to face with Jesus. He has just found Jesus innocent. He's questioned him. He finds nothing wrong with him. And so the right thing to do would be to release him, would be to let him go. And if anything, he should be asking, why is this innocent man just been beaten up? Because clearly Jesus has been beaten and his beard had been torn and he was battered and bruised at this point. So he should be questioning them. What was this man done to deserve this beating? But instead, Pilate, he, he doesn't want to cross the religious leaders because he knows that rather than Jesus causing trouble, that they are the ones who can make life difficult for him. They are the ones who could stir up trouble and even riots. And Pilate's job was to keep the peace and the order for Roman rule. And over his tenure, he'd already offended the Jewish people on numerous occasions, leading to trouble and to some riots and some kickbacks and things. And so he was already, if you like, on his final warning. And so he didn't want to cross them again and, and cause up any trouble. So he spots a way out of it by passing the buck and sending Jesus down to Herod. And so next up, Jesus is dragged back down the city to the palace of Herod, who Herod is there in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And this is where we pick it up next. It says this, Luke records, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he'd been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. And finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back up to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. And so now Jesus is taken back up again, back up to Pilate's uh, quarters after enduring another round of being shouted and lies and being ridiculed. And Pilate investigates Jesus again another time. And then it says this, then Pilate called together leading priests and the teachers of religious law along with the people and he announced his verdict. This is Pilate, the judge, the one with the authority. This is his verdict on what should happen. You brought this man to me accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and I find him innocent. Innocent. That's the second time. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. From Pilate's own words, nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. So Pilate again declares that Jesus is innocent. And so what he should be doing now at this moment, he's the one in charge. He's the one with the authority. He should be releasing Jesus that's the right thing to do. But what does Pilate say? I find, the see here, I find him innocent, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. He says, I'll have him flogged. This doesn't make any sense. Pilate says, I find this man innocent, so I'm going to punish him, and then I'll release him. And being flogged, that wasn't just like a caution or a slap on the wrist. The way that Romans, the, the way that they flogged people was absolutely brutal. 
And, you know, people could die from a Roman flogging, and it was designed to crush someone and to humiliate someone so that they would never dream of, you know, crossing Roman rule again. And it was a punishment that the Romans themselves were exempt from. They would only give it to foreigners and to slaves. And so here we see Pilate compromises further in trying to appease the religious leaders. He begins to play his part in a miscarriage of justice because he knows that Jesus is innocent, but he's starting to compromise and to give in. And the religious leaders, they know they got Pilate on the ropes now. He's starting to give in. And so they're going to push to the very end until they get what they want. And it says this, Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. And so here at the time, during Passover, there was a tradition where a prisoner could be released. One prisoner would be released and pardoned and set free at Passover. So Pilate now, he thinks, oh, I could use this. He's tried to use Herod to get to release Jesus. That didn't quite work. So he's thinking, now I could use this tradition to release Jesus and to do it without crossing the religious leaders. But what he doesn't realize is the religious leaders have gone amongst the crowd and they've stirred them up and they've organized this mob to ask for Jesus to be crucified and for them to release Barabbas. And so this now catches Pilate by surprise. And here's their hypocrisy as well, that they brought Jesus to Pilate and said, we want you to kill this man because he's causing riots, which he isn't. And then a few hours later, they asked Pilate to release a man who was imprisoned for causing riots and even murdering people in those riots. Do you see the hypocrisy here? It's unbelievable and it's so blatant and obvious. And everyone just watches as this takes place. Okay, so Pilate now, it says this. This catches Pilate by surprise, but it says, next, Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time, Pilate demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. For a third time, Pilate says, I found no reason to sentence him to death. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die, as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wish. So if we just pause here for a moment and consider the terrible injustice that Jesus endures. He's lied about and falsely characterized to fit a crime that he didn't commit. He's condemned to death by a judge who knows he is innocent, says it three times, but is more concerned about his own position than judging fairly. And we see how Jesus had no advocate throughout his trials. There were no friends standing by Jesus. There was no one there for him. He went through this on his own. And as we just think and reflect on these things, what Jesus went through, it reminds it makes me think as well about how many people in, in, our, in our actual world today, they face this experience as well and sometimes go through this. And a couple of years ago, I read this book by Brian Stevenson, who is a, a lawyer who helps uh, men who've been 
who are often clearly innocent and have ended up on death row because they've been falsely accused. And then because of prejudice, evidence has been easily ignored or even fabricated to make them fit the description of a crime. And then they come up against a system where there's maybe judges and lawyers that don't really care about the individual person and are more concerned with getting the job done and getting through the jobs than actually seeing justice take place. And I'm sure we can all think of stories from the news or books we've read or films we've seen or maybe even people that we know who've had this experience or been through something of this nature. And so for us as followers of Jesus, let's make sure that we never compromise on matters of integrity and justice like Pilate did, even if they're not the stakes of these things, but even in our daily lives, in the workplace or with colleagues, you know, where there's questions of integrity and justice, let's make sure that we never compromise, even in those smaller things. And when we do have the opportunity, let's use our voice for those that don't have one and to be an advocate on the behalf of the innocent. And let's remember Jesus and his experience, because as we see it in this passage of scripture, Jesus is plainly innocent, and everybody knew it. Pilate knew it, the bystanders knew it. Later on, when he's crucified on the cross, we see that even the Roman soldiers knew it, but they all looked on and watched as an innocent man is condemned and crucified. And what really strikes me as I read this passage, as Luke brings it out, is that, is that moment when Barabbas, who actually committed the very crime that Jesus is falsely accused of, is released and let go. Where it says this, Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over them to do as they wished. And Jesus receives the punishment that Barabbas deserved. And in this moment, we see a picture of what Jesus has done for all of us, for every single one of us. And in the Bible, it describes how, as people, we are made for perfect relationship with one another and with God. But that humanity rejected God. We thought we could do things our own way. We thought that we knew better and as people rejected God and went their own path, it brought a break in that perfect and close relationship with God. And wrongdoing became a part of life. And relationships between people as well became fragile and broken as we hurt one another sometimes as well, don't we? And ultimately, we came into it, we found ourselves separated from God who sustains life. And so death enters the world and is a consequence of that separation. And we're all in that boat. You know, we all experience this and we're all a part of that. And none of us are perfect. But God, he wanted to rescue humanity. He wanted to restore people and our relationship with one another and our relationship with God as it was intended. And so he came into the world himself as a human being to rescue people. And when Jesus lived... He lived a perfect life in relationship with others and in relationship with God. He didn't reject. He didn't hurt. He didn't do wrong. And as we've seen, he was innocent. And so when Jesus experienced condemnation and death, it wasn't because of his own doing, because he was innocent. But he experienced it because of humanity's actions. And we see that played out 
in this. But because Jesus is God and he himself had done nothing wrong, when he died, he broke the power of death because Jesus was innocent. Jesus had a perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus is life. And so death could not hold him. And so God, becoming man, went through death and broke death with life. In Acts, it says this, God raised him from dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. And so in doing so, Jesus restores humanity. He restores our relationship with God. And with that, he restores eternal life to humankind. And so for us today, if we choose to follow Jesus, if we choose to welcome him into our lives, if we choose to follow the path he sets for humanity rather than our own path apart from God, away from God in our own strength, but if we choose the path Jesus sets for humanity, in the Bible it says that he comes into our lives, that God's power comes and lives within us. And we have an immediate, close relationship with God through the Holy Spirit restored to us. And we're forgiven for the things that we have done wrong. And Jesus gives us the eternal life that he won for us by dying on the cross. And his perfection, he clothes us in his perfection and removes all that we've done and places it on the cross where he died. Jesus died so that we can live. And as we look through this and we see how Jesus died, you know, on the surface, it can seem as if Jesus is in the hands of these powerful people, as if he's helpless, as if it's up to Pilate and up to Herod and up to the soldiers and there's nothing he can do. But in another way, underneath the surface of things, we see actually Jesus is, is in another way, he's in total control. It's not that Jesus had a death wish, he didn't, but rather Jesus chooses to allow himself to be a substitute on our place. Barabbas was about to be condemned to death and Jesus doesn't shout up and you know, defend his innocence, but rather he chooses to take Barabbas's place. And in the same way, he cho chose to take our place. A theologian called uh, Tim Mackey, he said this, Dr. Tim Mackey, he says, Jesus is in command of the situation. Even as he's hanging there on the cross, he's giving out mercy as he dies. So let's look at this last part together as we come to finish and see how Jesus, even in these moments, gives out mercy and is in control in a different way, in a kingdom way. So it says this, Jesus is taken out to be executed. And it says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And so Jesus forgives and even prays for those who are killing him. Jesus practiced what, is preached, what he preached. He said, pray for your enemies. Jesus does that right here. And he forgives them. And Jesus, who had no advocate, becomes an advocate for others. He becomes our advocate and pleads to the Father on our behalf. And he prays and asks the Father to forgive these very people. And he, Jesus does that for us too. He says this in 1 John, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the world. Jesus, who had no advocate, is our advocate. Isn't that amazing? Meanwhile, when the Romans were crucified, people, often in films of Jesus and stuff, we see him up like on a hill, and it could have been like this, we see him up on the hill, like really high up, kind of in the background on a really tall cross, and it could have been like that, but actually usually when the Romans would crucify people, they would do it down at eye level, they'd have the, the cross like down, just just like no higher than I'm raised to you, if not lower, and they would want to do it on a busy street. So loads of people, as people would be walking past, they would come eye to eye with the person being crucified because they wanted to humiliate that person and they wanted everyone to know that this is the power of Rome. And if you cross Rome, this could be you. And they'd want to make an example of that person. So chances are Jesus was low to the ground, face to face with people on a busy street as people are coming past. And we read that as people watched Jesus dying, they hurled insults at him bystanders, the religious leaders, the soldiers, even the criminal on his left was hurling insults at Jesus. We read this. Oh, so here we go. This is where Jesus was brought out to be crucified out of the city. And it says this, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And that's what people shouted at Jesus. If you're the son of God, if you who say, I'll save yourself. So powerful are you, so strong are you. Show it, prove it, save yourself. Now, here's the thing. Jesus could have. Jesus could have saved himself. He could have stepped off that cross and called on the might and the power of heaven and angels and rescued himself. He could have done that. And if I was there hanging on that cross and I knew where I was have you ever been falsely accused of something and everything within you just wants to shout that you're innocent and no, it was this or this or that, isn't it? It's such a horrible feeling. And if I was Jesus on that cross, that's what I, I know that's what I would want to do. How, Jesus, the, the self-control to absorb the insults of people and not to just take himself off that cross, but he chose to take it. He chose to take it so that we could be rescued and we could be set free. And it shows the love that God has for us. And it says this next, but the other criminal protested and said, this was, so one criminal's accusing Jesus, and then the other one says to him, don't you fear God? Even when we have, we've been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus, he absorbed it so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be rescued, just like the criminal on his left was rescued and was gifted a place in heaven, which we receive when we put our faith in Jesus. And then finally, it says this, by this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole city until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with those words, he breathed his last. 
Now imagine seeing that. Imagine it being, you know, a hot Easter day, the middle, you know, Easter for us, obviously, the middle of the day, 12 o'clock, the middle of the day, sun highest in the sky, and then suddenly the whole place is covered in darkness. The whole place goes dark. Matthew says there's even earthquakes. And then Jesus gives this loud cry to the Father, a defiant shout, a cry of faith, a cry of victory. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was faithful till the very end. Even at the moment of death, he completed his mission. He trusted the Father. Into your hands I live my life and I commit my spirit. And when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshipped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Innocent. An innocent man before all the people, but who gave his life for us so we could be set free. Isn't Jesus amazing? And so for us today, let's give thanks to Jesus for all that he has given to us. And if there's anyone here today or anyone watching at home and you have not yet accepted the gift that Jesus has given for you, that he gave his life for you so that we could have the gift of eternal life, so that we could go to heaven, so we could spend eternity with Jesus and with God and no relationship in our lives because Jesus gave his life on the cross and came back to life again three days later. And if you want to say yes to Jesus and ask him to forgive you for the things that you've done wrong and to come into your life and set you free and bring you that gift. And if you want to start a journey where you walk with him for the rest of your life, then you could do that today. And we're going to pray a short prayer. And if you want to join in and say yes to Jesus, you can do that with me. So why don't we just close our eyes and you can pray this with me if you want to. Jesus, I thank you that you love me so much that you would give your life for me. And right now today, I want to accept the gift that you have for me. And I choose to follow you in my life. Would you forgive me for the things that I've done wrong? Would you come into my life? Would you help me to know you and to live for you each day? And would you give me the gift of eternal life that you promise? I choose to follow you now. Thank you. Amen. Let me just pray for us all. Father, I thank you that you love every single person who's in this room right now, every single person who's watching at home, and that you love us so much that you gave your own son who lived a perfect life and gave his life for us on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you're alive today, that you conquered death on our behalf, and that you welcome us into friendship with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray would you come and fill us again now of your presence and your power. And as we go through this week ahead, would we know your presence with us and would you help us to bring this good news to our friends and our family and our neighbors and colleagues as well. In Jesus' name, amen.